This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So certainly some trouble seemed to emerge late yesterday for Tesla and more specifically its founder and CEO, Elon Musk. As that hearing was winding down on Capitol Hill, word came from the SEC via the Bloomberg, uh, a Bloomberg scoop, I should point out, uh, that the SEC was in fact suing Elon Musk, the CEO of Tesla, and further uh, recommending that he no longer be a part of a public company. The shares have uh, taken quite a hit over the subsequent 24 hours, even as people have been distracted by other news. Let's try and understand a little bit more about what's happening with Elon Musk and Tesla. Joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio is Max Chafkin, Features Editor for Bloomberg Business Week, has written extensively about Elon Musk and about Tesla and a number of the other Musk holdings, as well as Eric Gordon, professor at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan, joining us on the phone from Ann Arbor. Max, I want to start with you. Bring us up to date because a lot of people have been quite distracted by other news uh, going on. What is happening at this moment with Tesla? So uh, if you remember back a couple months ago, Elon Musk made this uh, jaw-dropping buyout offer that kind of looked like maybe he was just sort of figuring things along you know, as he went. And uh, as we learned uh, late last night from, the, from an SEC complaint, it appears that, yes, maybe that is what happened. That's what the SEC alleges. They're, they're charging him with securities fraud, seeking to um, basically take him off the board and, and take him out of the CEO chair of Tesla. Uh, Eric Gordon, come on in on this. Uh, you know, you're also a lawyer. You've taught securities law. Tell me from a legal perspective um, what this means for Elon, what this means for Tesla. Yeah, so I think uh, I think Elon's in some real trouble here. I think this is a fairly easy case to prove. Um, and it's not the end of his troubles because uh, we, all, we know that the Department of Justice, another branch of the government, these are the guys with badges and guns, have been asking for information. They can bring a criminal case. The case that was uh, brought yesterday is a civil case. They, they want money. They want Musk to not be the chairman of the board. Uh, they want some independent directors, apparently. Um, but uh, there could be even worse trouble for uh, Elon. And Tesla's in an interesting position. Tesla is not part of the case that was filed so far, but they could be added either to the SEC's case or as uh, an aider and a better in a criminal case. So, you know, the bad little boy has gotten past the point of being a bad little boy. He, he's now got himself and uh, Tesla in, uh, in a real pickle. We should note that Tesla shares are down about 13% today yep. Yep. off of almost $41 a share, down around 266 per share. And let's remember that the buyout offer uh, or the, the potential take private that Elon Musk proposed was at $420 a share. And even that 420 number max came up in the complaint in a way that I have to say, I think had a lot of people just shaking their heads. 
Uh, the complaint noted, uh, Jason, you're alluding that, to the fact that Musk uh, appears to have admitted to the SEC that he picked the number um, in part because uh, it was a marijuana joke, um, which is not normally a, a good reason to to engage in what's the probably would be the world's largest corporate buyout. Um, so so yeah, the optics are are pretty terrible um, for for Elon Musk. The ironic thing is the stock. If the stock goes down far enough, you know, you could uh, a take private offer becomes. Um, something doable, that feels right? more likely, you know? Right. So, Eric, I, I did want to ask you one question that what Max was just saying reminded me of, which was that there are reports that Musk was in fairly serious settlement talks up until just the last couple of days and then did a bit of a U-turn and decided to uh, fight it, uh, to sort of play this out in the courts. As Carol mentioned, you have a lot of experience all around this, both from an M&A and a legal perspective. How much jeopardy is he in, and where do you think this goes? I, I think I, I think he's in jeopardy. I think that was a big mistake. If I had been his lawyer, I would have been tearing my hair out. Because what the SEC was reported by your Ben Bain, I saw it on my uh, terminal, what the SEC was asking for was, was sort of little bitty things, 5 or $10 million, that he would no longer be chair of the company, but not necessarily kicked off the board, not necessarily kicked out of his CEO seat. So for him to turn down what, not even a hand slap, sort of an air kiss from the SEC to fight it, I I think is an indication of a guy who, I I don't know if it's his ego is in play, I don't know what caused him to turn it around, but it puts him in jeopardy, and if I was a director of Tesla, I would say, look, this guy guy turned down a wonderful offer, we could be past this, Um, this guy's the wrong guy to be running the company. I gotta bring in too, because the Tesla Tesla board said it's fully confident in Elon, his integrity, and his leadership of the company. Um, that was a joint statement that they put out yesterday. Our focus remains on the you know continued ramp of Model Three. Blah 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 blah. Max, you guys did a story for Business Week that said you know this this board's got to go. <laughs> Somebody yeah. needs to hold Elon accountable. So it's kind of funny saying the board of Tesla needs to do something about it because functionally. Uh, you could make a pretty good argument that there really isn't much of a board because most of these people are very, very close to Elon Musk, connected to him in various ways, either because you know his brother's on the board or because they're connected to one of his other companies. Um, so right now, you know, there there is very little board oversight, and I, I think um, you know that that that's the thing that's sort of stopping this from 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 resolving itself in, in the way that was just suggested because right. Elon is basically out on his own here, and and he is the only person, as far as we can tell, making these decisions. You know, for better or worse. Max Chafkin, features editor for Bloomberg Businessweek, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, and Eric Gordon, professor and friend of the show at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan, joining us on the phone from Ann Arbor. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Have a nice weekend. More to come on this story, I am sure, Carol yeah, Masser. No doubt about it. As you mentioned, Jason, Tesla shares right now down 30, uh, 13%, down more than $40 a share. Stock is uh, down about 14% so far this year. This is Bloomberg. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. On a Friday afternoon, a busy Friday afternoon, some headlines continuing to come out of the nation's capital around the nomination and confirmation, pending confirmation for Judge Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. Uh, Senator Lisa Murkowski, uh, of course, a Republican 
coming out and saying that she is backing Jeff Flake, another Republican who has asked for a one-week delay so that the FBI can further investigate the charges that have been brought, the allegations that have been made uh, by Dr. Ford that we heard so extensively about yesterday against Judge Kavanaugh. Uh, We are turning to... A voice we love to hear. Yes, indeed. Uh, He breaks it all down for us on an almost daily, certainly weekly basis, and that is Matthew Phillips, politics and policy editor for Bloomberg Businessweek, joining us on the phone from a very busy Washington bureau. Matthew, always good to talk to you. Likewise. So what's the latest? Uh, Bring us up to speed, and and maybe more importantly, where do we go from here? Okay, so there was supposed to be um, a floor vote on the Senate tomorrow. Uh, that looks uh, not at all likely to, to happen right now. Jeff Flake is meeting, uh, we're told, with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell right now to discuss the parameters of his uh, condition. Uh, the the vote to get um, Judge Kavanaugh out of the Senate Judiciary was supposed to take place at 1.30. Uh, Jeff Flake uh, went missing from the meeting room, came back with a condition on his vote. That condition is uh, to get his support. He needs... Uh, uh, a week-long uh, investigation by the FBI. The fact that Murkowski is joining him on that is crucial for math purposes because, of course, the Republicans have a 51 uh, majority in uh, in the Senate, and um, Vice President would be a tiebreaker on that. He needed one more to join him. He's got that now. He doesn't control the Senate floor. Obviously, Mitch McConnell does. Uh, that's where the decision lies, but it doesn't look like if he does force this vote, it's at all um, clear whether he's going to get uh, the votes needed to uh, push Judge Kavanaugh through. So, Matthew, do we get the vote next week or now it's uh, it's up in the air? So he's asked for the condition. He was very clear. He said uh, he wants to do uh, diligence um, and to delay up to, but not more than one week to let the FBI do an investigation, limited in time and scope again to not more than one week. When does that time, when does that clock start ticking? Today? Tomorrow? That's unclear. Are they going to need an entire week? Also unclear. Uh, there are members of uh, the Republican side that say, look, whatever they come back with, we've, we've made up our mind. Um, there are still a lot of unanswered questions here so, as we sit here at 2.30. Well, let me throw this back on top of it, too. President Trump saying he will defer to the Senate on how to handle Kavanaugh. Is he stepping back completely? And what does this mean in terms of an FBI investigation or what else happens from here? That's a huge question because the, F- uh, the the president is meeting with the president of Chile right now. He was just briefed on this almost as the rest of the of, of the public was, and he said, "Look, I'm going to let the uh, the the Senate uh, control this. They've been doing a good job." Um, there are questions about whether the White House has to instruct the FBI to go ahead and uh, go forward with that investigation. That's something that the White House has been unwilling to do up to now. And Matthew, help us understand the. I guess the background of some of the other players involved here, Chuck Schumer, for instance, he has some say in what what happens next. What do the Democrats have to do at this point? Or are they just sitting back and essentially watching this play out? I think the ball is entirely in the in the court of Mitch McConnell. Obviously, uh, Schumer is uh, is the ranking on that. Um, but it's not clear what they can do. I mean, I think that they got at least uh, something of what they were hoping to get by the uh, by the end of today. I mean, this morning was filled with just very tense partisan um, 
discussions and speeches uh, given by um, both sides of the aisle during uh, the uh, the hearing uh, this morning of uh, the Judiciary Committee expecting the vote for 130. It was clear that um, the, the Democrats weren't comfortable with this. They were calling the, the process in the in the question, and there was also some, you know, some hurt feelings. I think about calling the integrity uh, in the question of um, of Senator Feinstein and how her staff and office handled um, the letter that was given to her confidentially by uh, Dr. Ford this summer. A uh, lot still um, to be answered, uh, and I know Matthew, you're you're on it along with our team in Washington. Matthew's going to stick around. Matthew Phillips, policy and politics editor at Bloomberg Business Week. He's got a, a great story in the magazine this week. That's the cover story. So we'll dig into that in just a moment. Let's take care of a little bit of business. Man, we took care of so much business this week amid the deluge of corporate and political news this week. You can't forget. Do you remember what happened on Monday? The U.S. and China upped the ante when it came to new tariffs on one another. Tariffs, the subject of an interesting Bloomberg Businessweek magazine cover this week. The cover story here to tell us about the one aluminum company that loves Trump's tariffs on the metal. Still with us is Matthew Phillips, policy and politics editor at Bloomberg Businessweek, on the phone from our Washington, D.C. bureau, and in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio right here in New York, Joe Doe, metals and mining reporter at Bloomberg News. Joe, I'm going to kick it off with you. Um, you guys spent months putting this story together. Yeah, it's 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 been a while. Um, you know, labor, labor of love, Jeff. La- right, right. It, you know, it's one of those stories um, that comes along where you, you know there's a good narrative here. There's a lot to tell and kind of connect the dots. But so much in between that time happened. Uh, these small things that the average American who even fo- follows markets closely wouldn't know that sanctions uh, that were slapped on Russia hit. The second largest aluminum producer in the world, which threw the aluminum world into to mayhem, right? But but as we've seen all of this kind of the dust settle, we, we, we finally kind of saw the story that we ended up writing that got into the magazine this week, which was uh, a small aluminum producer, which the three of us have talked about here on this radio program before. Century Aluminum. Century Aluminum. Uh, you know, had this lobbying campaign to get something done in the aluminum industry. Initially, it was WTO, and then ultimately it came down to tariffs that the president passed on on the aluminum industry. And of course, uh, what a lot of people in our world know, but what that don't know in a larger grand scheme of things is that Glencore, the largest commodities trader in the world, is a 40% holder in the company, and they offtake about 75% of the metal that the company sells. And so we kind of got to this story. So, Matthew, come on in here because this was a really interesting team-up that we had between you two guys writing this piece. And a lot of what you brought to the fore, I believe, in your reporting and knowledge of Washington was the whole role of Wilbur Ross in all of this. The Secretary of Commerce and, of course, a figure well-known on Wall Street, very successful billionaire, private equity investor. He is a key player in moving this to the point where it is today. over the past year and a half. I mean, Wilbur Ross is arguably one of the most uh, uh, powerful Commerce Secretaries that we've had uh, in our lifetimes. And he's clearly in the camp of the nationalist pro-tariff, pro-protectionism uh, camp that uh, has kind of divided this White House. And, 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 and they seem to clearly win that fight. And so this was done through this uh, 1962 uh, Trade Act, this little-known se- section of it, uh, that had to go through the Commerce Department that basically said if the Commerce Department runs this investigation and determines that the national security of the United States is 
threatened by imports, the president can act unilaterally to put tariffs down. So the ball was in Wilbur Ross's court uh, to run this investigation, to have this process inside commerce, to bring in uh, industry and trade groups. And uh, they came to the conclusion that, yes, in fact, not just uh, imported aluminum, but imported steel, too, was uh, was impacting national security in the U.S. And what was interesting to me when I first started talking to Joe about this was, you know, you have this little company, Century Aluminum, that frankly most Americans have never heard of. Right. And on the, other ha- on the other side, you have basically every other company and industry in America, including a large portion of the aluminum industry, not in favor of this. So the ultimate question that intrigued me was how in the world did this happen? How did this small company beat back practically every other company in industry in America to bring about this huge change in trade policy? Well, what I love is while Century was lobbying the Trump administration for those tariffs, you had Glencore, which owns 40% of the shares, has a board sheet on Century, um, and some other commodity companies were stockpiling record amounts of foreign aluminum in the United States. The thinking was, right, if tariffs were announced, they were going to make a, a bunch of money on those stockpiles, and that happened. Yeah, this this was a great trader play, right? You, you sit there and you cover these physical markets for so long, and, and, and there's some guys who just go long, right? They, they just hold metal, and they, they expect that something's going to happen. In this case, the bet was that the President of the United States would pass tariffs, and instantly – all of the value of the metal that you're sitting on just changes overnight. And, you know, we, we had found that, uh, you know, obviously Glencore was an obvious one. They're one of the biggest traders here in the U.S. It's not in terms illegal of or is it? Not illegal. No, I mean, what they did was a smart trade was a smart trade. And, and, and Michael Bless, who's the CEO of, of Century Aluminum, I mean, he got what he should be doing for investors in his company, which is making sure that he keeps producing aluminum in the United States of America. Two years ago, and Matt knows knows this, two years ago, we wrote a big piece about how Century Aluminum was this little-known aluminum company that was going to have to shut down all of its production if nobody did anything. And nobody was doing anything until the Obama administration, to their last week, filed a WTO case claiming that the Chinese were illegally subsidizing their industry. And Matt knows we wrote a story saying as, Ob- as Obama went out and Trump came in, it would make sense for Trump to use this as his first chip on the trade table to bring the Chinese and say, we're going to negotiate this behind closed doors and get something done. He didn't do that. And instead, they brought up a 232, which nobody in Washington knew about. Even the Usually trade experts. used in time of war, right? Cor- correct. I mean, 1962. Think about the time that this law went into effect. Not even trade experts knew much about this. It's like I had one source tell me, well, gosh, you know, when we heard the 232 was being rolled out, there wasn't a single person in Washington you could call and ask, what is everything we need to know on this? Wow. They had to Which go back maybe, to it themselves. Maybe part of the strategy. Right. Yeah, so was that, I mean, from your reporting, Matthew, was this part of the strategy? I mean, was this sort of the the political workaround that, that the administration used, essentially? So what's crucial to understand about a 232 action is that uh, it allows the president to bypass the WTO. Um, And, you know, 
Joe which he has Rod- ridiculed oh, at this point. Oh, of course. Yeah. You know, it's it's um, the, a globalist, uh, do-nothing bureaucracy full of uh, America haters, right? That's kind of the way that the president sees it. And also, as effective a template um, as the Obama administration handed him in this WTO complaint against Chinese aluminum could have been, uh, we all know how this president feels about his predecessor. It, it was not likely that he was going to take up an act that, it, that had been handed to him. He wanted to do something bigger. And so that's what we got. And it wasn't targeted um, against China, per se. That's why so much of the rest of the industry is, has been so against this thing, is because it goes uh, to basically every country. There are a few exclusions, but mostly the big, the big companies, uh, the big countries that uh, send a lot of aluminum into the U.S. are hit with this tariff. Most importantly, Canada. Yeah. Right. Well, okay. We're, we've run out of time. It's a great read, a great story. And there's an interesting twist at the end that has to do with scrap metal yeah. and China that might ultimately hurt um, Century Aluminum in the end. But we've run out of time. So read the story because it's incredible. Um, great reporting. Uh, Joe Doe, metals and mining reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio here in New York. Matthew Phillips, policy and politics editor at Bloomberg Business Week, on the phone from our Washington, D.C. Bureau. And check out Jason and me on Bloomberg Business Week throughout the weekend on radio and TV. This is Bloomberg. And we turn our attention back to Washington and to bring us up to speed on all things Kavanaugh and the Senate, as well as wrapping up a very busy week on this, as they call it, the Acela Corridor between (laughs) uh, New York and Washington. He's a frequent traveler on that line. Craig Gordon, executive editor and Washington bureau chief. Uh, Craig, you are the hardest working man in show business. Uh, Tell us the latest and maybe more importantly, as we go into the weekend, what happens next with Judge Kavanaugh? Sure. Well, the one thing that doesn't happen is a vote tomorrow morning on his uh, nomination to the Supreme Court, which we had all come to work today expecting to get through today and get through tomorrow and uh, come back, you know, come back and do it all again. So that has been put on hold uh, as best we can tell right now. The state of play is that Senator Jeff Flake from Arizona, an outgoing senator who's uh, been in the sort of the never Trump camp, uh, originally told us he would vote yes on Kavanaugh, then said, no, I need to have a we need to have the FBI take a look at some of these uh, sort of lingering questions after Dr. Ford's testimony yesterday. I would like a one week delay on the final vote and the final vote that would put him on the Supreme Court while the FBI takes a look. Uh, there was a, sort of a lot of confusion around that at the committee hearing, but it, uh, it does seem like that is what uh, they have now agreed to. Mitch McConnell has yet to come out and actually put a formal stamp on that yet. But certainly Flake has made it clear he won't vote. Uh, Lisa Murkowski from Alaska, another sort of uh, undecided vote on Kavanaugh. And if you have two votes in the Senate uh, on the Republican side, you can't have the vote. So right now we think that's what's going to happen. Good news is we all get the weekend off. Bad news is we now have another week of trying to figure out exactly um, where this nomination ends up. So, Craig, I have to ask you, I mean, it was a dramatic moment. We were sitting here watching it as many people were, the confusion, as you said, in the committee room. Do we have any sense what changed Senator Flake's mind? There was a a video that went rather viral uh, over the course of the day of him being confronted by some victims, apparently, of sexual assault in the elevator there uh, at the Capitol. What happened? Right. Um, and right. We all saw we all saw the confusion in the hearing room. We all saw the video of him um, being confronted in the elevator. Pretty dramatic video there. 
Uh, so I'm always reluctant to sort of psychoanalyze lawmakers, but it does seem like in the space of about two and a half hours from the time he said he would vote yes to the time he said he couldn't vote yes on the final vote without his investigation, something happened. Now, a little bit lesser notice was last night after the uh, the very dramatic hearing yesterday, obviously, where we heard from Professor Ford and then we heard from Brett Kavanaugh. There was a meeting of some of these undecided, uh, uh. you might call them moderate members, uh, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, uh, Flake, and Democratic Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia, who's a person that the White House has always hoped they might be able to get to vote yes. Uh, he's in a pretty tough race of his own for the Senate reelection. In the fall, they had a meeting. They all left the meeting without really giving us a lot of insight into what had happened. But, you know, it seems like perhaps some of this conversation might have started last night when there were clearly many, many, many leftover questions after um, Ford's testimony and Kavanaugh's testimony, and at least some feeling that maybe, uh, you know, the Democrats really spent the whole hearing calling for an FBI investigation, and it sounds like at least some of their Republican colleagues heard them. Trump's been pretty quiet. Say that again. The president. I mean, he did make that one comment saying, I'm going to basically leave it, leave it up to the committee, to the Senate, to handle uh, Judge Kavanaugh. Uh, but it seems like the president has been somewhat quiet. Yeah, I have to say, a lot of us in D.C. have noted that. I mean, he you know, he started out by not saying much about um, about uh, Ford when that whole story sort of came forward. He did he did get a little uh, a little more direct, shall we say, about some of the later accusers uh, from New York New Yorker magazine and um, and the one that's being represented by Michael Avenatti. But I have to say, he has said repeatedly, "Look, I'm standing by Kavanaugh, but I want to hear from from Professor Ford." Uh, he said about Professor Ford, she actually was sort of believable and seemed like a very you know professional whatever uh, person. So he has at least tried to portray the idea of being even handed open to listening to the evidence, all the while saying, you know, look, I picked Brett Kavanaugh. I think he should be on the court. I think he's a strong guy, and, and let's go forward with this. But it is interesting on this one topic, he definitely has struck a more moderate tone. I can only imagine that any conversation that the, the Senate is having right now about delaying the vote must involve the White House because, as I think we've all learned over the past week, really only the White House can order an FBI investigation. Um, Trump sort of suggested that he would you know, defer to what the Senate wanted on this, right. so I don't think he's going to stand in the way, but it probably he probably does have to say the word. We also do have a headline crossing. Uh, the majority whip, uh, Senator from Texas, John Cornyn, uh, saying that the Republicans agree to a one-week probe fbi probe on brett kavanaugh so um so there it is so that's the official yeah. confirmation that is what jeff flake asked for it wasn't totally clear he was he was going to get it though it certainly felt that way john Cornyn, the number two republican senator you know in the republican party mm -hmm. after uh, after mitch mcconnell himself that is the official word that this vote has essentially been put off for a week well we are very lucky that you were here with us with that headline cross are you sure you have the weekend off yeah <laughs> i'm just never saying, a craig. weekend off for you craig gordon craig gordon our washington bureau chief executive editor joining us uh, from our bloomberg 99.1 studio in washington i'm driving in my car i turn on the radio how about you let me drive oh no 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 who's gonna drive you home Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close, wrapping up uh, this Friday, wrapping up the week, wrapping up the month of September, wrapping up the quarter. Brad McMillan is Chief Investment Officer, Commonwealth Financial Network, $156 billion in assets under management, uh, and he's joining us uh, 
right here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, usually in Waltham, Massachusetts, but uh, here in New York. I said to you when you walked in, I said, I just want you to know, you know we have been focused on the news out of Washington in a week that was incredibly busy, global leaders in town, so we've been looking at things like trade and other issues, Fed meeting, um, but this news out of Washington, um, rightfully so, you know, everybody focused on it. We've talked about trading rooms <laughs> slowing down, trading floors slowing down. Um, it's not necessarily a, a pure business story, but there could be implications politically, uh, maybe in terms of the midterms and so on. I don't know. How do you guys factor this in? I think you need to look at what's actually going to happen. I mean, as a citizen, obviously, I'm following this closely. I'm concerned about it. As an economist, as a market analyst, not so much. I mean, will there be effects on the midterms? Absolutely. But let's really, we can talk a million things about how the midterms turn out, but ultimately one of two things is going to happen. Either the Republicans are going to retain control of Congress and have a unified government, or they're not. So you have two policy environments coming out of that that really drive into the economics. If the Republicans retain control, potentially we get more positive, business-friendly policy. If they don't, we have gridlock, and we're kind of stuck where we are. Mm -hmm. Historically, both of those have been pretty favorable for the market. So no matter what, you know, it shouldn't make too much of a difference. So let me ask you this, because one of the reasons we love talking to you, Brad, is because you have you've had a lot of jobs over the course of your career in a very positive way. Checkered past. You've developed real <laughs> estate. You've been a consultant. You've been a lender. You've, you know, you've been a startup guy. Uh, put yourself in the mind of a, of an executive right now, a business person having to make spending decisions, whether it's CapEx, whether it's investing more in real estate, are you comfortable right now? Or are you optimistic given not just the political environment, but the broader economic environment? I think given the tax given the tax environment, given the growth environment, I think you have to be confident. You have to be favorable. In fact, I think there might be a bias. Even if you assume everything's going to fall apart, there's a bias towards doing things now hmm. while you can still take advantage of the favorable policy environment. You know, for, for all that everyone's concerned, and we're seeing all this, if you actually look at the numbers, business remains remarkably confident. Right. Consumers are more confident in one survey anyway than they have been since 2000. Right. We heard that earlier from Yelena, that uh, consumers, you know, because they've got more money in their pocketbook. There's two things. They've got jobs to an extent. Again, they haven't had since 2000, so they can spend. And with the confidence, they're willing to spend. So that's 70% of the economy. You put in business, they're investing, they're doing well. You put in government, which is actually spending more. You know, all of the economy is really got a tremendous tailwind behind it. So where would you allocate new investments at this point? I think at this point, if you're putting new money in, the U.S. equity market remains. But I would be cautious about kind of capitalization-weighted indices. And what I mean by that is some of the biggest companies have had a tremendous run. And that's been wonderful, but if they, if they revert to something normal, then that might reverse. So what you want to be is you want to be in equities, but at the same time, you don't necessarily want that overexposure. So you want to go with indices or with funds that manage that exposure. You don't want to be making an Apple bet, a Facebook bet. You want to be making a bet on the U.S. economy. What about housing? I feel like we're starting to get like those little hints here and there, maybe some bigger than little hints, that the housing market is not as robust as as it 
was or it has been. Uh, how much do you worry about that, either as a leading indicator or something that should be cause of concern? The housing market does seem to be at past its peak. In other words, we're starting the downward slope. But thus far, it's a remarkably gentle downslope. Mm -hmm. You know, we have the millennials continuing to move into the home buying age. We have tremendous. We have a shortage of supply, which helps elevate prices. Interest rates are still low historically, but there's no doubt this is an indicator that the cycle itself is probably starting to roll over. You know, I've heard this before over the last couple of years. Oh, it's time. The cycle's getting a little long in the tooth. You know, I mean, but, what is it? What is it? What's different? But what we're seeing this time is we actually are seeing things about as good as they can get. And let's go back to government spending. Are you going to say Goldilocks? Are you going to go there? No, I'm going to say post-Goldilocks. Okay. Oh, I like that, post-Goldilocks. Yeah, that actually has legs, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> we're at Goldilocks. We've been at Goldilocks, and we're getting to the point where it's about as good as it can get, and we're starting to see things like housing that are starting to roll over. But if you look at the indicators, typically the most reliable ones give us a 12-month lead time, and none of them has gone negative yet. Hmm. So while you can say we're probably past the peak, we're certainly not on the downslope as a whole yet. So what are you most worried about? Just an optimistic note for the weekend. What are you most worried about, Brad? <laughs> happy talk, happy talk. Um, I would say interest rates. Yeah. Because what we've seen recently is we're starting to see signs that interest rates, and I'm thinking about the 10-year Treasury specifically, are going to crack that 3 3%, 3.1% barrier. And we haven't been able to do that since really rates were cut in the aftermath of the European crisis in 2011. So if we actually transition to kind of a post-crisis interest rate range, that implies a repricing of pretty much everything to something closer to normal, and that could be a big shock. Not worried about any kind of new crisis brewing at this point? I think that would be the new crisis. Oh, that would be but internationally, the only thing that looks likely to shake so just things— So just a pricing, a revaluation— well, the thing is, if you get interest rates up, then presumably at some point valuations are going to revert down to historical levels. But again, we're not going to see that until we get a recession. You know, the only real shocks would be um, possibly Europe. You know, Italy, that's a concern. Yeah. Even trade that we've been talking about. But I feel like we talk about it and then we somehow work our way through it. Well, again, everyone... the market grinds higher, at least the equity markets, U.S. markets. Everyone talks about it like it's a cliff. Yeah. We're going to go bang off the cliff. It's not a cliff. It's kind of a uh, slope, and the slope's going to get a little bit steeper, and we're going to slow down, but it yeah. doesn't seem to be a cliff. <sighs> that's a, just, that's, a, that's a deep sigh. Brad McMillan, <laughs> Chief Investment Officer, Commonwealth that Financial kind of Network, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio, normally up in Waltham, Mass. I fear you're a Patriots fan, which is good news for— Aren't uh, we all? Over no. <laughs> no, we are not. You made Paul Brennan, our producer, very happy. How, how are they doing, though? They're doing very well, all things considered. All, all right, things all right. considered. Boy, that's a hedge if I ever heard one. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master, along with Jason Kelly. Just got a few minutes left in today's trading session. S&P right now just down about half a point. Dow Jones Industrial Average. Market's bouncing around a little bit. Still up about 15. NASDAQ, again, if two, we're closing out the month, and we're closing out the quarter. The close in just a minute. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.